there have been some defining moments in my life, moments when uh, the Lord called me to do something, and I responded to God's call, and as a result of that, uh, nothing really changed in my life. Uh, I wasn't, uh, but I was different as a result of responding to God's call, just doing what God wanted me to do. Uh, changed me to some extent. Uh, as I approached preaching through the book of Revelation, as we've been going through for the last uh, some months now, I've approached that as a call from the Lord. I feel called by God to preach through the book. I don't do it because it's easy for me. I don't do it because it's easy for you. I do it because I feel like it's a divine appointment. I feel like there's something the Lord wants to show us in and through this book. And prayerfully, this morning might be one of those pivotal moments where your, uh, your insight either increases or changes, but maybe the Lord is trying to show you something. Maybe he's trying to tell you something. Now, I've tried to tell you that as I see uh, the book, uh, it's, it's layered. It's many layers. Uh, and so you have chapters 1 through 3, which are uh, the story of the seven churches, Jesus' letter to the churches. The next division or the next layer begins in chapter 4 and goes through the end of chapter 7. And when you get to chapter 6, you feel like you've come to the end of the world. You get to chapter 7, you find out you've not. Chapter 8, everything starts over and you begin another cycle or another layer so that when you come to the end of chapter 11, you hear that cry, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. As a matter of fact, some people see the book of Revelation as two distinct books. They see the first, chap the first book beginning in chapter 1 and ending in chapter 11, a new book entirely beginning in chapter 12 and going to the end of the book. I don't see it that way, but as I've read so many times the book of Revelation and studied it, it's chapter 12 that makes me realize that it's not a linear book, but a layered book. And I'm going to tell you why. In chapter 12, we're not reading what will happen. In chapter 12, we're reading what has happened. And chapter 12 gets us ready for what will happen. So let's open the book then. And the title of the message, as you see today, is Spiritual Genetics. Spiritual Genetics. That might be an odd title to put over uh, this chapter of the Bible, but I think you will see it very clearly as uh, we continue to work through it. Beginning to read now in verse 1 of chapter 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So question number one, 
who is this woman? Is this an actual woman, or is the woman herself a symbol? Well, the best way to identify the woman, I think, is to first identify the child. And in verse 5, the child is, uh, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we know that because in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it refers to the one who will come who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's the Messiah. The Messiah would come. And then also in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, Jesus speaking uh, to the church at Thyatira says to them, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end, to him, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter are broken in pieces, even as I have received authority from my potter, from my father. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's really no question about that, that this is Jesus. So the woman, whoever she is or represents, is used by God to bring the Messiah into the world. Remember, we're looking at pictures uh, we're looking at pictures of truth, and the truths are always greater than the pictures themselves. Second, this woman represents the people of God's purpose. This is not just one woman or just a woman at all. This woman is a picture of God's people who uh, God is using to bring about his purpose. The woman is obviously a symbol. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has a dream. The reason I bring up Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 is because Joseph dreamed of uh, uh, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. The sun was his father Jacob, the moon was his mother, the 11 stars were his brother, he would have been the 12th. So obviously this is a reference to, at this point, the nation of Israel. It's a picture of the nation of Israel, but the symbol goes back beyond Israel. It goes all the way back to Abraham. You know, God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that he would make his, descent, his descendants a blessing to all nations. And the way they would be a blessing to all nations is not by being just good people, but they would ultimately bring the Messiah into the world through the descendants of Abraham. And so, according to Jesus... Now we're talking. According to Jesus, being Abraham's offspring had nothing to do with genetics, but with faith. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. But the symbol reaches back even further than to Abraham. After Adam sinned, God said, and the gospel was preached for the first time. I asked Brother Doug this morning, and he knows now, and he's going to ask the youth one day, and you're going to know because I'm going to tell you, and when he asks you, you will know. But if you're in a disciple now or in a group of thousands of young people and Doug's up on the stage and he's speaking, he's going to say, Where, who was the gospel preached to for the first time? Who was the first person to ever hear the gospel? The devil was the first person to ever hear the gospel. And he heard it 
In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14 and 15, here it is right here. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the feast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity. That means you're not going to like. Enmity is hatred, dislike. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall bruise his heel. Now this is where we get our first insight into God's plan and those who would be the people of his purpose. This is the first promise in the Bible of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it foreshadows what we read in this very chapter about the enmity between the devil's offspring and the woman's offspring. The woman represents the people of God's purpose. The child is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the dragon. Well, the dragon is the adversary of God's people and the adversary of God's purpose. Last week, I reminded you of what, the, uh, what uh, Peter said about the devil, the warning he gave. He said, you be sober, you be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's, that's exactly what he wanted to do here. He wanted to devour the child. He wanted to destroy God's purpose. Uh, this is a picture of who the devil is and what the devil wants to do. He is a monster whose one desire is to destroy, to devour God's people, to devour God's purpose, and it has been so from the dawn of time. What was the devil trying to do in the Garden of Eden? His obvious intent was to destroy what God created. He intended to wreck the relationship between man and God and to hinder God's purpose. He was there from the very beginning. The, this ancient enemy of God has stalked God's people down through the ages in an effort to destroy the purposes of God. Now, if you understand the scripture, you know that it was in God's heart to restore this broken relationship between himself and man. And in order to do that, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be the people of his purpose through whom he would bring the Messiah into the world. And as the adversary of God's purpose at every stage of history, the devil attempted to keep the Messiah from coming into the world. One perfect illustration of that is in the Christmas story when Jesus was born. We read the story about how the wise men came and, and they came to Herod and said, where is he going to be born? And, 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 and so Herod inquired and he found out and then Herod made arrangements to have all the boy babies two years and under killed. And who was behind that? It was this monster, this dragon, the serpent, the adversary of God's purpose. And in verse 9 of this very chapter, he's identified as the serpent, the devil, and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. So these are pictures, but they're pictures that are interpreted for us. Now, the dragon, as you see here, has seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven crowns and numbers are symbols in the book of Revelation. We've talked about that 
We've talked about how many times the number seven is used and how often it means fullness or completeness. And as Jesus had the seven spirits of God, which simply means he had the fullness of God's spirit, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily, Satan is the fullness of the complexity uh, and of evil. The ten horns represent the vast resources of his power because horns are emblems of power throughout Scripture. And the seven crowns represents the authority he wields over his domain. In the Bible, he's given these titles. The devil is. He is, according to Scripture, the God of this world. In the Bible, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In the Bible, the devil is called the ruler of the world forces of this darkness. In the book of Revelation, he's given two titles, Abaddon and Apollyon. Both those names mean, one, the first one means destroyer, the second means, the first one means destruction, the second means destroyer. In the book of Revelation, he is the angel of the bottomless pit, and he's the king of the demons. And here he is before the eyes of John, pictured as he does his best to destroy the Messiah. Now the people of God's purpose, represented by this glorious woman, appear, appear to be helpless against such a hideous and powerful monster. Well, let me give you a summary, and I'm going to repeat this several times before we finish, uh, of the picture of this woman. She represents the people of God's purpose. What do they do? What is their purpose? They bring the Messiah into the world, they face the wrath of the dragon. They must trust God to protect and provide. And they must be faithful regardless of what comes, even if it's death. So the scene changes in verse 7. Now we're about to read verse 7. Verse 7, in verse 7, we're introduced to war in heaven. Chapter 12, verse 7. And then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Next, war in heaven represents the victory of God's purpose. Now remember, we're not in the future. We're looking back on some things that have already happened. This is not a war that will take place. This is a war that has already been fought and won. This is a symbol of the spiritual battle that took place in heaven because of the work of Christ. The death of Christ on the cross was Satan's undoing. You say, how can that be? Well, let me just read you what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus sent out 70 to preach. And they returned from their preaching mission and reported to Jesus. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, as he was facing the cross, he said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. So because of the work of Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. Because of the work of Christ, you and I are able to resist the devil and he will flee from us. The dragon cannot touch the people of God's purpose. 
He is identified a little later as the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who formerly cast condemnation on God's people. But because of the work of Christ, Paul said in Romans 8, now I'm about to put this together for you by reading Romans 8, and then we're going to pick up from there to the rest of these verses in chapter 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he said in verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For that reason, we have the announcement in verse 10 of chapter 12. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Here is the picture Jesus defeated the devil on the earth. He conquered him at his temptations. He conquered him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He conquered him on the cross. He conquered the grave, and that victory opened the door for this victory in heaven. That war was fought and won in our behalf, and it has practical value in our lives because every time the devil uh, points at you, points his finger of accusation at you, covered as you are by the blood of Jesus, when he points his finger at you, you remind him that you belong to the people of God's purpose. You belong to God. He may touch your life, but he can't touch your soul. He may persecute you like he persecuted Job, but don't let him have the victory even in the face of death. Have no fear because the people of God's purpose are protected by God. So what am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you, make it very clear, that the woman represents the people of God's purpose throughout the ages. Her offspring are the brothers. Look at verse 10. The brothers, these are the people of God's purpose who carry God's mission in the world. They conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. These offspring as a group become the people of God's purpose and they find themselves in continual conflict with the dragon and his offspring. Now, 
What about this 1,260 days? This is what we all have a question about, during which the woman is to be nourished. And that's the next point that we need to look at. The 1,260 days, the 42 months, the time, time and a half times. It's all the same thing, three and a half years. The clearest picture of this, I'm going to suggest to you, doesn't come from this book. And it doesn't come from the book of Daniel. The clearest picture comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, and one of the best illustrations of this period in all the Bible, from the life of Elijah. Uh, in chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, Elijah came to Ahab and said, the judgment of God is coming and it's not going to rain. And it didn't rain. James tells us it didn't rain for three and a half years. How long is three and a half years? 1,260 days. 42 months. A time, a times, and a half time. And what happened during those years? Well, it didn't rain. And so guess what happened? There wasn't anything to eat. And who didn't have anything to eat? Elijah didn't have anything to eat. And so the Lord commanded the ravens, and the ravens came and fed Elijah. And then and he lived by the brook. And then the brook dried up. And it got things got worse. The Bible tells us there was no rain for three years and six months. And during this period, during the same period, and you think about it, you exercise your spiritual mind, especially those of you who know the Scripture. During this period, the people of God... Elijah included, Elijah was protected, remember. The people of God were facing the wrath of the dragon for 42 months, 1,260 days. Many of God's people were killed by Jezebel. Remember Jezebel? She's the wife of Ahab. And during this same 1,260 days, God's people as a whole suffered need, famine, and suffering. These were the people of God's purpose. In a terrible time when they were undergoing the wrath of the dragon, and yet somehow they were nourished, they were provided for, they were protected. At the end of that period, Elijah, you know how he prayed fire down from heaven and all of that and killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword, but Elijah himself was so discouraged that he went and lay down under a juniper tree and prayed that he might die. Why did he pray that he might die? Here's what he said. Listen very carefully. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. Listen carefully. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Notice who Elijah said had killed the prophets and thrown down the altars and forsaken the covenant? The people of Israel. And why did they do that? Because they were in league with Jezebel, who was in league with the dragon. And Elijah thought he was the only one left of God's people, the only one left of the offspring of the woman. But during this time of intense suffering, God responded to Elijah by saying this. 
I have 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And these people, that remnant was somehow nourished during that period. They were the people of God's purpose. And if you will pay careful attention, this 1,260 days, these 42 months, these three and a half years are always days of the wrath of the dragon, days of difficulty for God's people, but days when God's people are miraculously nourished and cared for in their difficulty. And with that in mind, look at verse 12. And we're about to move to the last point. Verse 12. Therefore, and we're not in the future yet. As a matter of fact, we're in the present right now. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and a half time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. I'm just showing you pictures, and these are pictures. Don't get lost in the details. This period of time, a time and a half times, that same period, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, represents a time of persecution, which is the vengeance of the dragon against the purpose of God and the people of God. And that's our final point. In fact, the verses we just read don't speak of the future. They speak of what's going on today. Who's the woman today? Do we identify the woman with the nation? No. Were the people of, God, were the people of God's purpose identified as a nation in the time of Elijah? No. They were identified by those who had not bowed their knee to Baal or the dragon. And so those who did so, did so because they were his offspring. It was the same in the time of Jesus. There were those who claimed to be descendants of Abraham. There were some Pharisees, prim and proper, who came to Jesus and said, <clears throat> we have Abraham as our father. They were, genetically, they were descendants of Abraham. And they were Jews to the core. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, but if you were Abraham's descendants, you would believe me. But because you don't believe me, you've proved yourself to be the children of your father, the devil. You see, spiritual genetics has nothing to do with what nation you belong to. Spiritual genetics has everything to do with whose offspring you are. Are you the offspring of the woman? The woman is though are those who carry the message of the Messiah into the world. They face the wrath of the dragon. They trust God to protect and provide and they will not bend their knee. They will not bow to kiss the hand of the dragon 
even if it means death. You look at, the, you look at them down through history. You look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You look at Paul. You look at the people in early Christian history. These are the descendants of the woman, those who carry the message of the Messiah into the world, those who, who face the wrath of the dragon, those who trust God to miraculously provide for them in times of difficulty, even if it's famine or persecution or peril or sword. They overwhelmingly conquer in all those things through him who loved them. Now we come to the last verse, verse 17. And it's this verse that prepares us for what's to come. Because when you read the last verse and you turn the page in the book of Revelation to chapter 13, then you're in the future. Then you're in the days of the Antichrist. But before we get there, we need to identify who you are. Who are you? I'll just ask. Are you the descendants of the woman? Are you the offspring of the woman? Are you the offspring of the dragon? Let's read. Let me read you again verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is that who you are? What do her offspring do? They carry the message of the Messiah into the world. They face the wrath of the dragon. They trust God under all circumstances to protect and provide. And they will not bend their knee. They will not kiss the hand of the dragon, even if it means death. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's spiritual genetics. Let's pray.